Welcome to Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. I am Cecily Link, and today we are going to be talking about the seventh track on Kate Bush's debut album, The Kick Inside, called James and the Cold Gun. me today to talk about the song are two very feisty cats and her husband <laughs> andrew link who's yes. going to step away from the microphone for a moment to kick the cats out while you do the rest of the introduction okay very good so i have my wonderful husband here to talk with me about this song my husband andrew link the cats have now the cats have now been removed from the room yes oh wait one of the cats has oh been wait yeah <laughs> so now that the cats have been evicted because <laughs> they've decided that, oh, we've got the humans up here. It's playtime. And we go, no, we're recording a podcast, Cat Children, kicking you out right now. Go watch cartoons. Thank you for being on the podcast with me today, honey. Always happy to join you. I know. <laughs> So, do you want to start with the uh, recording history or with the... uh, Okay. As for the recording history of the song, it was written... It was definitely written after she was signed, but before the album was released, obviously. um, Because she performed this with the KT Bush Band. Uh, Her record company told her that she needed more experience playing live... So she ended up getting a band together, and after much rumination over what they were going to call themselves, they called themselves the K.T. Bush Band. And the band consisted of Vic King on drums, Brian Bath on guitar. Brian was a a good friend of Kate's older brother, Patty, and they knew each other from school. And he also knew, by the way, that uh, Patty had this really talented little sister, our lovely Kate, and also Del Palmer on bass. And Del Palmer was uh, somebody who later became her engineer and her longtime collaborator and boyfriend. So how they ended up meeting Kate? Well, um, there are a couple of versions of that story. <laughs> Supposedly... Um, Kate saw Brian Bath playing with Vic King and another friend at the Whitechapel Art Gallery in 1976. She was there to perform at her brother's final year show for her Patty's course in music instrument technology. The drummer, Vic King, claims that after the performance, Bush came up to them and said, hey, I'm looking to play live. Would you guys like a singer? Um, If you ask Brian Bath about it, Actually, it's um, the way it happened was that uh, Patty called his parents' house and said, hey, my little sister is looking for starting a group. Would you guys like to help? Either way, they ended up meeting. They rehearsed all through the winter of 1976 and 77. And Brian Bath knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody in the local music scene, because also it's worth noting that all three of these guys were veterans of the South London music scene. They'd been in various bands, and they all knew each other, too, from school. Well, they ended up getting a residency at a local pub called The Rose of Lee, which is still there, but it's under the name Dirty South. And throughout the summer of 1977, They ended up playing a total of about 20 gigs. They played at the Rose of Lee. They played at the ship in Brighton where they were actually asked to stop because their music was not what the owners were looking for. They also played at a place called the Half Moon in Putney on the eve of the England versus Scotland Football International. And apparently the crowd just went nuts because Scotland won. There were a lot of Scottish fans in the audience and it was just absolute madhouse. So they ended up playing about 20 gigs, and during those gigs, they got to play not just the hits of the time, 
but also they got to play a few of her originals, such as Them Heavy People, the saxophone song, and this week's song, James and the Cole Gun. There is a recording of her singing Come Together, which is interesting. It's just interesting to hear Kate doing a then current song. You mean the Beatles one? <laughs> yeah, the Beatles one. Come together right now. Yeah, and so this is this is a clip of her. This was recorded supposedly by Dell. This was recorded by him, her doing Come Together during these pub gigs. During these pub gigs, they would not only play the songs of the time. Hey, not a lot has changed. That's a lot of bands, even though I know cover bands are a huge thing in, in our area here in Virginia Beach. But also, they would occasionally put in a few of her own. And one of the showstoppers was an early version of James and the Cold Gun. And for James and the Cold Gun, she would get dressed up like a cowgirl. <laughs> and she would prance around the stage trying to be theatrical and so unfortunately there is no known recording of this oh not no no audio no no audio Uh, like no audio and certainly no video of her doing this oh my how things have changed people could just whip out their smartphones hey upload it to youtube no there's no recording of her doing this so i just have to imagine like a young kate prancing around probably a teeny weeny little stage because i'm imagining that this place where they had their residency was like the tap house in Norfolk. You know how they they've got a the tap house is a, a local a local bar and grill emphasis definitely on the bar part. And they they occasionally have local musicians who come and play. And it's a teeny weeny little stage. So I'm trying to imagine a young Kate Bush in a cowgirl costume trying to do this big theatrical thing on a teeny weeny stage. But they played an early version of James and the Cold Gun. So it was definitely recorded after she had gotten signed, but before they, before the record company said, hey, we think you have enough experience now, let's put you out in the world and see what happens. So what do you think of James and the Cold Gun, honey? This song doesn't even sound like it belongs on the same album Mm-mm. as anything else you've played for me so far. No, absolutely it, not. I'm not honestly sure where it belongs. Um, I'm thinking maybe in a stage musical that's yes. uh, kind of aping the style of a John Wayne movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's the the kind of dun, 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 the, the the piano riff that it opens with really makes me think of I don't I don't want to disparage the quality of the music but it kind of reminds me of like those basic chopsticks things that you learn how to play as a kid mm-hmm. on piano and but then of course with added complexity and all that but it feels like a Broadway musical version of a saloon playing camp town races yeah, on the old totally. piano style thing. Oh, totally. And speaking of Wild West, like listening to these lyrics and then watching the live version of this, because we're and we're going to talk about the live version in a little bit because it's pretty legendary <laughs> and pretty awesome. That you can tell she's 
she might have been maybe she caught a couple of John Wayne movies on the telly or something because she is very much influenced by other media like movies and books and TV shows. I mean, come on, the previous song was from a BBC miniseries version of a Victorian novel. I wouldn't be surprised if she had seen some westerns before she made this song. The possibility. Yeah. Definitely. She has said in multiple interviews, and I can't find an exact quote, that she likes to let her imagination run wild, and I can tell on this song, and that she likes to to use other media to influence her when she's doing her writing, and I can tell on this one, because it it has this kind of saloony, jaunty piano, dusty piano in the corner kind of feel to it what do you think about the lyrics of this song well we are continuing in the kate bush storytelling style um we are continuing with a story song that was clearly influenced from uh watching westerns she makes references to knocking back whiskey and gin and when i hear those in a song i either think of one of two things i either think of an old west saloon or I think of a country song, and this is not country. <laughs> as much as you know the UK, as much as the US version of EMI put her in a box, looking like she was going to come out singing like Tanya Tucker or something like that. No, this is not a country song. Also, she makes a reference to buckskin, and so those references make me think. Okay, this is Wild West. She was obviously influenced watching like a John Wayne movie or two. Um, it's dark. <laughs> I mean, come on, the name of the song is James and the Cold Gun. Um, I used to think, and I used to think that this song was almost like telling the story of like a Wild West John Wick. (laughs) Because to me. (laughs) When I look at the lyrics, I thought, oh, this is somebody who's gotten in with the wrong crowd. Because he's, you know, she says in the chorus, um, and all your friends are knocking whiskey, whiskey back. Um, they're only longing for the life that they led with their old friend. Makes me think of somebody who was in with the wrong crowd. He wants to get away from it, but he keeps getting pulled back in. Just like John Wick. <laughs> well, well, so I'm seeing in your notes, uh, the, the, the interpretation I give of the lyrics is... That it's a kind of um, like a gunslinger in the old west mm-hmm. who has, for an unspecified reason, given up, taken his gun, and ridden out of town. Just him and his rifle riding away, giving up the gang that he led, giving up the women that he uh, bedded. Yeah. Remember Jeannie from the casino? She's still awaiting in her big brass bed. And he's just riding away with him, his horse, and his gun, giving up on this whole cowboy. Riding on a horse with no name. <laughs> Had to get in that reference. <laughs> Going through the desert with said horse, yes. Yes, going through the desert with a horse with no name. <laughs> Sorry. Just hope that it doesn't rain too much. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you were saying. But, well, just that's the interpretation I get, that it's the people that he's left behind in the town saying, you coward, you've left, come back and be a proper gunslinger again. Mm. But I'm seeing some different interpretations in your notes. Is that from... Yeah. Can you explain those and maybe say, uh, like, why you have a different interpretation than I do? And is this from your own mind? Is this from interviews that you've read? Go for it. Well, there there actually isn't a whole lot that she has said directly about the song. The other interpretation I have in my notes was from songmeanings.net. Um, if I need to go look up lyrics and I don't want to have 50,000 pop-ups, I go to songmeanings.net because not only do you get the song lyrics, but also you get other people's interpretations. And one interpretation I read was that she thinks that it's this poster says that it's about a town hero who leaves to maybe go off and fight in a war. And because he's no longer around, things are getting on un- really unruly and 
his 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 gang and his family want him back, but he he wants to stay in the war because like oh he's all kind of caught up in the violence, and his friends are saying no if you stay in the war you're probably going to get yourself killed. Mm-hmm. That seems to be kind of the common interpretation. I go for the John Wick one one because I like the movies. <laughs> But also because I know that she likes to do, like, really, like, imaginative, wild kind of stories. So, maybe my that's my interpretation of the song. This is from an article called La Bushka, which was published in Sounds Magazine in 1980, August 30th, 1980. I got this from gaffa.org. This isn't her talking directly about the song, but it is about her influences. She says, quote, My imagination runs like a nonstop B-movie with me as the star, unless I'm daydreaming about sport, in which case I'm always the commentator for reasons I'll leave to the psychoanalysts among you. It gives me excitement, a savor of heroism, free trial runs of situations I expect to face. Kate agreed it was her version of that parallel reality which went into most of her songs, stories so far away from the suburban convent schoolgirl. For instance, I really like guns. Not what they do, but detach them from their purpose and they're fantastic, beautiful. And yet they're designed to kill, which is against everything I believe in. It's worth noting, by the way, that she is a vegetarian. And she said in multiple interviews that the thought of killing another animal to eat just disgusts her. And when she was on tour, it was a big deal that um, that the cuisine that was cooked up for everybody was all vegetarian. Yeah, well, and this isn't in, this isn't entirely unique to be interested in violence as an artistic plot element uh or or weaponry as an aesthetic device i mm-hmm. mean you, you can even go with like like sylvester stallone loves making action yeah movies, but is <laughs> is incredibly in favor of extreme gun control because it's possible to completely believe in a certain way of life and how the world should work but still enjoy telling stories that violate all of those rules that you believe we should actually follow. Mm -hmm. And so further with the quote here, she, she says, she talked with relish about the gun used by the assassin in the day of the jackal. Mm -hmm. Very fitting because we actually just watched that movie while I was sick, like two weeks ago. It was an interesting gun design. It It wasn't interesting. Reminded me of, um, there, there's a great George Clooney movie called The American. Oh, yeah. It follows mm-hmm. a similar, uh, similar themes. Yeah. Um, and with fascinated horror about dumb, dumb bullets, she was well up on the technical details. How someone can even think about lining a bullet with mercury so that it rips another human apart is incredible. I'd never shoot anything living at all. I was always given dolls when I was a little girl, of course, so maybe if they had given me guns, I wouldn't have had this thing. Unless I'm trying to get back at all these people shooting me. She looked at Mike, and he countered with an astute inquiry about the routine she did on stage with James and the Cold Gun, which produced the much-used stills showing her licking the rifle barrel and firing from the crotch, raw phallic gestures. She skipped around that for a moment, though. Quote, I was brought up on movies. Love, revenge, and death. Violence, when used correctly, can be a brilliant instrument in entertainment. Or it can be disgusting. Normally in James, we used bits of red felt to represent blood. But one night we used capsules and spurted the stuff all over the place, and the audience loved it. They like strong imagery. What, what the style really reminds me of is like a, like a Henry Fonda western mm. where you know the, the Jimmy Stewart style it, 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 it's Jimmy Stewart so there's a lot of a lot of slow talking and a lot of contemplation and then John Wayne well he's just gonna walk into town and kill anyone who gets in his way but then Henry Fonda westerns tended to have 
more complicated characters who might be trying to get away from uh, their life, but getting pulled back in. So mm-hmm. I-, I wonder if she watched Henry, Henry Henry Fonda Westerns as a child. I would love to know. This is one of the things, like, if I ever got to meet Kate, we, like, pick her brain about some of these influences. And I know sometimes she doesn't like to talk about them. Like, she wants to lead people to interpret things in their own way. But still, I like knowing what influenced works of art. <laughs> but that's that's just me. Maybe it's because I like doing doing music and I always talk about what influenced any of my songs. Yeah, and a couple of other things that people have kind of... Uh, some have talked directly about this song and others that kind of around it. Because she's never talked about this song specifically and what inspired it, other than to say that she chose the name James because it sounded right in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that was from a Kate Bush newsletter, a Kate Bush Club newsletter from 1980. This is from a review of it, of the album. James and the Cold Gun, a song about 007, not, that seems <laughs> as deliberately nonsensical as the plots of some of the Bond films. That was a stereo review from 1978, retrieved from gaffa.org. There are three different versions of this song that are readily available. There's her album version. There is the Live at the Hammersmith Odeon version, which was recorded on one of the last nights of her tour. And then there's also an on-stage EP version. Because before uh, before the, the Hammersmith Odeon audio uh, CD was released in the late 90s, whereas before it was just on a laser disc or on a VHS, there was no other way to listen to the live show. Mm-hmm. They had an on-stage EP version, which had four songs from the show that were supposedly recorded during the last night there. This, the version of James and the Cold Gun on the EP, sounds a little different from the version on the Hammersmith tape. So, who knows when they were actually recorded? I don't know. So, there are three versions of that song, and my favorite version is the live version because you get to see her being very you get to see her just like getting to do the bigger version of what she was probably doing on a teeny weeny pub stage do you uh do you prefer it mainly because of the visuals or Mm -hmm. is there some is there something in the 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 sung or or uh or instrument performance that you prefer also? It's mostly the visuals that you get to see her being, like, acting out the song. And because Kate doesn't perform live the way that, say, some of my other favorite artists do, getting to hear her, getting to hear her acting out the song and singing live is a real treat for me because she does it so infrequently. Talking about the live version of it, because most of what I found about the song was about that specific live version. This was also from Under the Ivy. This was from Graham Thompson. He says, Few other artists had taken the pop concert into quite such daring territory. Its only serious precedent was David Bowie's 1974 Diamond Dogs tour. There were 13 people on stage, 17 costume changes, and 24 songs, primarily from her first two albums, The Kick Inside and Lionheart scattered over three distinctly theatrical acts. Her brother John declaimed poetry, Simon Drake performed illusions and magic tricks, and at the center was a barefoot bush still only 20 years old. (laughs) And then he says later about the song, For them heavy people, she was a trench-coated, trilby-hatted gangster. On the heartbreaking O England, My Lionheart, she became a dying Second World War fighter pilot, a flying jacket for a shroud, and a Biggles helmet for a burial crown. Every song offered something new. She moved from Lolita, winking outrageously from behind the piano, to a top-hatted magician's apprentice, 
from a soul siren singing of her pussy queen to a leather-clad refugee from West Side Story. The erratically charged denouement of James and the Cold Gun depicted her as a murderous gunslinger spraying gunfire, actually ribbons of red satin, all over the stage. There was no room for improvisation. And he goes on to talk about how she she and the band worked for months and months and months before the shows, like making sure everything was perfect because this is Kate Bush. Everything must be perfect. Yeah, and, I, and we've talked before about how the tour of life was all about a, an exact vision she had. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. Necess- it, it wasn't just a hey. You like my music. You like me. Come watch me play my music. It was. I am putting on an artistic vision, and you are the witnesses to my perfect vision. Plan. Yes, <laughs> reenacted upon stage. And it's interesting that that Graham Thompson mentions David Bowie because I've talked before. We've mentioned him before. And some of one, a couple of the previous episodes in terms of her theatrical imagination. And yesterday I went on YouTube and I looked up that tour to see a couple of the songs and how he staged them. And I can see where she was going. That he, in the way that he was performing with lots of, with like interesting costumes and stuff going on behind him. In one of the songs, I think I, I think it was called Cracked Actor. He was sitting on a stool with this elaborate costume, holding a skull in one hand. I have expected him to go into like a to be or not to be Hamlet mm. kind of thing. While a bunch of, uh, while a bunch of lights are kind of moving on free arms around him. And then at the end of the song, after he's done singing, he actually takes the skull and kisses it. And that act, I went, whoa, that looks look like something she would do. And I can see where she was trying, that she was taking that this kind of performance art mm-hmm. and putting it in the arena of pop music, which was completely new for that time in which... Nowadays, oh, let's see, what is Ariana Grande doing her concerts? Oh, yeah, she's got tons of dancers and lots of projections and stuff. Yeah. Like, it's a commonplace thing <laughs> to do this when you're doing a big pop production. But it was new for This was performed live on her um, her tour of life, which until 2014 was the only set of concert dates that she ever did in her career. And this was one of the last songs that she did. Uh, she did the this was the third to last song. Then she would leave the stage, and then she had two more encore two encores, which were "Oh England, My Lionheart," and then finally. The cherry on top of the cake, Wuthering Heights. After singing and dancing for almost two hours at that point, I can start to see that she's getting a little bit tired. Oh, <laughs> 
Oh, and also what I like about the live version is hearing the extended coda. Because they play the song the way it sounds on the album, except that she sounds a little bit more tired, obviously, because she's running around the stage. You're going to be a little out of breath. But then, like, the band starts to slow down the song, so it it almost sounds like a prog rock song. (laughs) And as they're doing that, she's, like, strutting around the stage, still dressed like a cowgirl, barefoot, by the way. Completely barefoot. I don't blame her on the barefoot thing because, frankly, that makes me feel more comfortable like when I'm playing piano. Plus, I really don't like wearing heels and stuff. She has a rifle. And then over the course of, like, the last couple minutes of the song, the um, the dancers come out and she starts shooting them one by one. So, so she needed a different set of dancers each each week then? No, not for real. She didn't shoot them for real. Okay, so tell us. So I, I, I had assumed that because this wasn't Kate's only tour. something when we were talking a few days ago about um the the special effects they used in the stage ah yes so so what was that about uh how she shoots her dancers because you you were very enthusiastic and apparently (laughs) even less only half as enthusiastic as the great kate herself so (laughs) tell tell me more about the, the the uh simulated violence of this performance well after she's done doing her high stuff with you're selling your soul to a cold kind of thing she takes up her rifle and she kind of like moves her hips a little bit honestly it's kind of sexy to watch (laughs) and she is like looking around the stage like like her eyes are kind of all big and wild while the band is playing like a very slowed down version 
of whatever the main chords are in the song. The song is in B flat minor. I have the sheet music, so I looked at that. It's in B flat minor and it goes between like B flat minor, A flat, and E flat. So they're just going between these three chords for about three or four minutes. And she's like looking around the stage all wild eyed. And then one of her dancers comes out and she like slowly turns to him and starts quote unquote shooting him with her rifle. And in the video, it's a little hard to tell, um, probably because of the lighting. But if you look closely, you can see that what's coming out of the rifle are little red ribbons. Now, they actually wanted, she wanted to do fake blood. This is actually a quote from Under the Ivy, which was written by Graham Thompson, who I'm going to get to talk to for the, uh, the title track episode. He, was, he wrote a very extensive and well-written biography about Kate Bush a couple years ago. James and the cold gun marked the climax to the main body of the show. Bush strutted around the stage in a black figure-hugging space cowboy suit at the rear projection screen filled with a classic Death Valley movie vista bathed in a glorious orange sunset, a pre-echo of an image Bush would use again on the same stage in 2014, albeit in a very different show and in a very different context. He's talking about the Before the Dawn shows from 2014 that I didn't get to go to, but that's okay. The Wild West theme was a hangover from her pop performances of the same song in 1977, where she had dressed up as a cowgirl. During the song's long climax, where the meaty beat dropped to a sluggish, proggy half pace, Bush picked up a rifle and with some relish gunned down the two dancers and finally Paddy, her brother, one of her older brothers, as he swaggered menacingly down the ramp, scarlet ribbons shooting out the muzzle. It was a wonderful set piece and highly eroticized, a riveting dramatic enactment of female sexual power. Never mind the bodies piled up on the stage, Bush killed everyone in the room. And as for the special effects, he, he also had this to say. This is from the same book. It says, There had been some good-natured debate about how to stage the final shootout. Kate and Patty wanted to use liquid movie blood squirting everywhere, like Monty Python when she shoots. It's only a flesh wound. But the set was painted white, and that stuff stains. We had even tested it at rehearsal, and the ramp had a pinkish hue for the rest of the tour. They compromised with red silk until the last night, when, of course, we had to have real, quote-unquote, blood. On the final night of the tour, instead of Bush facing off against just Patty and the dancers... The entire stage crew dressed up as cowboys and Indians, and by the time the scene finished, Bush was knee-deep in corpses and red liquid. <laughs> now, unfortunately, that was not the version that was released for Live at the Hammersmith Odeon. She played there for several nights on the last night or nights of her uh, last couple of days of her tour. So when you watch the Live at the Hammersmith Odeon version on YouTube... It, it's red silk that's definitely coming out of there. It's not real blood. It's not real, quote-unquote, blood. Yeah. I, I mean, that is too bad. It, it almost it <laughs> fit with the kind of the prog rock nature of her music. If, mm -hmm. <laughs> if, if the version they had released was the version where, for the final show, they just destroy the entire set with, uh, with gallons of stage blood. Yeah, like, I don't know, like how the Who, they, they used to destroy their guitars. <laughs> hey, let's just destroy everything! It's the last night, why not? Mm. Oh, well. Yeah. So that's why I like the live version. Because <laughs> you get these, just, you get to see her, her theatrical imagination just, like, run. It's like, okay, we're, we're letting this, we're letting this horse out of the barn. Woo! We're gonna let it run off. <laughs>
The album version is good. It's very jaunty. You were pointing out this morning as we were listening to this a couple times over breakfast that, yeah, it's very jaunty. Mm-hmm. And the live version is like that, too. I like hearing her singing live because she doesn't do it. She does it so infrequently. Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. I generally prefer sometimes live versions of songs. Sometimes I'd rather go for the studio version because I like how that sounds better, but there you go. So so I see here that it, uh, the live version you say was uh, released on an EP called mm-hmm. On Stage. What was it? Tell me about that EP and, okay. uh, and the recording of this live version. Okay, so On Stage was an EP... That contained four songs from her tour. And the four songs that they included were Them Heavy People, uh, Don't Push Your Foot on the Heartbreak, James and the Coal Gun, and L'Amour Looks Something Like You. And until the Hammersmith tape was re-released in the 90s with an audio CD of the songs from the um, that edited version... That was the only live album she even had. So that's the onstage EP. It was released in the UK. It was released in Japan and across Europe on August 31st, 1979. So not long after the tour ended, because the tour ended in mid-May of that same year. But what's funny is that the, f- the fourth song on that EP was L'Amour Looks Something Like You. And the live footage of that, of her performing that song was not ever officially released. Hmm. The only way that I've ever seen that routine, and we're going to talk about that when we get to L'Amour, Look Something Like You in a couple songs, was a bootlegged version that surfaced on YouTube a few years ago. <laughs> so why she chose to release the audio, but not the video for that, like, but that's okay. Well, there's some other discrepancies I'm seeing in your notes here also. Something about uh, the version on the EP supposedly being recorded uh, during the last Hammersmith show, but Mm -hmm. it being different from... The the version that was officially released on the VHS, yeah. So so have you been able to track down anything about... Like, which show it might have actually been from, or is it all just kind of lost to the... I think it's just been lost to time. I mean, I would love to know what date it actually was, because the the version on the onstage EP is different from the Live at the Hammersmith Odeon officially released video. And the other songs on that EP, too, sound a little different. Um, like, Them Heavy People and... Um, uh, don't push your foot on the heartbreak. They sound different to me. Like the way, like she's in one version, she sounds a little more tired than the version on the VHS. <laughs> so who knows when it was actually recorded? I hate that it was so heavily edited, but you know, what can you do? So in, until they re-released the VHS of the Hammersmith Odeon tape, this onstage EP was the only officially released uh, live recording of hers. Sure, there were bootleggers. <laughs> oh, there were bootleggers. And I've heard some of the bootlegs and I go, oh my goodness, this is not very good. This sounds like it's been recorded underwater. <laughs> but late 70s technology. Uh, and in fact, uh, one version I have of the entire show was supposedly recorded for um during man her manchester date and they had recorded the video for it and just never released the whole thing but the audio surfaced a few years ago on youtube and i managed like okay yoink i managed to capture it capture it (laughs) (laughs) that's how i've gotten to hear the whole show like even complete with the poetry in between poetry readings in between some of the songs from her brother yeah, I'm looking at this uh, information you have here about uh, it being released on different types of records and cassette mm-hmm. tapes, and it's yeah. a little confusing. Do, do you remember what were 33s 
I thought that uh, 45s had better sound than 33s. Um, I'm not sure. Honestly, I'm not real sure. I was seeing, my parents had, and they still have a lot of LPs, but I was never allowed to play around with any of them. (laughs) So I don't have a lot of experience with vinyl records. Yeah, actually, yeah, it's worth noting. I forgot about this until I looked at my notes and you mentioned it, that in many countries, this on-stage EP was released as a 12-inch vinyl and cassette. But in the UK, the record company, for whatever reason, decided, hey, we're actually going to do two 7-inch vinyls, vinyl records, and they put it in a gatefold sleeve. And if you're listening to this and you're like, gateful, what, huh? Uh, basically, you open the LP and it kind of looks like a book. <laughs> um, my dad still has a in his record collection with filled with like 90% John Denver LPs. He's got um, An Evening with John Denver and it's a gatefold sleeve where you open it up and it looks like a book. And it's this, it's this panoramic picture of the Universal Amphitheater that used to be at Universal Studios in Los Angeles where he performed and where this was recorded. It's this panoramic picture. You open it up and it's like a book. So they they released it as two seven-inch vinyls. And then it says here, quote, uh, this is from Wikipedia, this edition quickly superseded by a single-disc version which crammed all four tracks onto one seven-inch vinyl record with a 33 RPM speed rather than a 45. So obviously it would play a little bit uh, faster than 45. Yeah. And the single was packaged in a gatefold sleeve. Again, open it up and it's like a book. It's just odd to me that they would re-release it as a 33 because as we've been talking, I've been digging into records uh, a little bit. Yeah. And... From what I'm reading, and listeners, please send us. Uh, if you've got feedback. more experience with this stuff, hey, let us know. Please uh, <laughs> come on, and we'll do. I'm sure Cecily would love to do a special episode all about the differences between records. Yes, but it, it seems odd to me that the record company would drop the 12 inch vinyl and switch to a, a 33 because. Um, 45s generally were acknowledged as having better sound quality <laughs> and were that was the version of records that was often used in jukeboxes. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I remember when I was a kid. I mean, uh, we'd it, go to the Pizza Hut and they had a, would have a jukebox and it was actual 45s and I'd watch them. I'd watch the little, little mechanical arm like taking out like, "Oh, little tiny record and put it on and play yeah it just it makes me wonder what the record company thought about the album or yeah. thought about the song that they instead of putting it on a 45 that could end up in jukeboxes they they put put I, it on they put it on 33s i can understand going from the 12 inch to the 7 inch they're mm-hmm. easier to ship and cheaper to produce but why go with 33 when 45 was available hmm. anyway anyway but that is very interesting. Hmm. I wonder why they did that. But at any rate, they re- she released this this onstage EP, and it did really well. In fact, they even released a single from it. Uh, it was a live version of Them Heavy People. And we'll talk about that when we get to Them Heavy People in a couple of songs. And that reached number 10 on the UK charts. So, hey, she was c- keeping going with the hit streaks. Woohoo. Also, it's worth noting... That the cover of the onstage version shows her kind of crouched and uh, looking like a cowgirl. Because the photo for the onstage EP was taken during James and the Coal Gun. Also, I think it's funny because I was watching the live version yesterday. You can actually see the tape marks on the stage for where people are supposed to stand. And I was like majorly watching this, like like trying to like get in every detail. And I'm like, hey, wait, I see the little little tape marks. There were lots of tape marks on the stage, lots of little X's and exit, lots of little X's, um, a couple of long strips of tape, but mostly like X's for. And I could see as she was moving that she was going over to those X's and things.
no, cover. Yes, co- cover versions. So I have found some covers of this song. Okay, so tell me about tell me about your covers. I, okay. I see here you got looks like four covers you found. Yes, I found four covers. Um, the first one is from a group called the Kabies, K A Y B E E S. That one is a pretty straightforward version. It's it sounds like the original, just with a di- different female singer. <laughs> I found which was my favorite of these covers oh my gosh this guy like completely made it his own I don't know much about this artist but he uh, seems very interesting mm-hmm. he goes by the name Potpourri of Pearls and he did a live version of this and this is my favorite of all the covers I found of this song because he completely transforms the song like, I can tell that it's James and the Coal Gun, but it's electronic, and it's done with a male vocal. singing it in the original B flat minor and he's singing it like in that falsetto and everything. Yeah, it's well done. <laughs> I mean it's definitely different. I mean musically I I, I honestly don't even recognize the music. Mm-mm. He has dramatically transformed it. Uh, but yeah it's fun. It is. <laughs> and, and he looks like he's I mean he's just grinning as he's singing this song in the video. Mm-hmm. The the third version I found was from Danny McAvoy. So not only is Danny McAvoy going to get played on the show a lot, but I'm also hoping to talk with him for the Lionheart episodes and also for a special episode I want to do just about the tour of life where I get to talk with people who were there because he was there on the opening night at the Liverpool Empire. Mm. So... I want to talk to him like, okay, you went and saw her live. Talk to me. I'm just going to let you talk. <laughs> like, it's not about me. It's about you because you were actually there. And I was not even born yet. My parents weren't even married yet. <laughs> <laughs> And the last version I found is from a cover band. They call they're called Hounds of Love, and they're a Kate Bush cover band. Really? 
Yes. Yeah, they're called Hounds of Love. Hmm. Gee, I wonder whose music they cover. And they did a version of James and the Cold Band as well. I think that the uh, Hounds of Love uh, track is very faithful to the original style. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, it's good, but it's definitely one of those covers where, like, okay, you you're celebrating the original more than trying to put your own spin on it, and that's that can be a good thing. Yeah. So, last thing I want to say about the song before I get into the, hey, contact me if you want to talk about Kate. So, this song was going to be the first single from the kick inside. Uh, the EMI executive said, hey, we want you to do this song because it's a little more orthodox. And instead, Kate said, um, excuse me, no, I want to do Wuthering Heights because that's going to make more of an impact. I think that was a good choice. I agree. I like this song, but if this had been released as the first single instead of Wuthering Heights, I don't think that she would have made quite the impact that she did with Wuthering Heights. No, because James and the James and the Cold Gun is a fun song. I, I enjoyed listening to it, and I mean. It, it does feel like David Bowie meets uh, the who who is it who composed Campdown Races? Oh, um, Stephen Foster. Yeah, it's kind of David Bowie meets Stephen Foster. I could say that. Yeah, but it doesn't make me go, "Oh, that's an amazing performer." I want to listen to everything that she's done. It's it's a good kind of middle of the road seventies rock song. Yes. But it's not stunning. Mm-hmm. It's not captivating. It, it isn't an image of the wonderful weirdness that will be Kate for the next 30 years. Yeah. It's more in line with the stuff that was popular at the time versus Wuthering Heights. Where it's like, what is this, huh? Yeah. This girl is deliberately sounding witchy and she's got weird chord progressions and what? Hits you over the head with it. Boom. Mm-hmm. Yes, it would have been interesting, but I'm. I think I agree. They made the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast and you're going, "Oh my God, I love Kate," and apparently this fan is just major Kate fan, and I want to talk to her, or if you know something about this week's song that maybe we didn't get to, feel free to hit me up either on Twitter at uh, Strange Kate Cast. I had a lot of trouble trying to find a Twitter handle for this podcast. So if you have a Twitter, you can also email me, KB, that's B as in boy, KBcast at linkmedia.com. And that's link with an E. You can also find me on Facebook. I now have a Facebook page. I'm at only 23 likes. (laughs) It's kind of paltry, but you know what? Everybody's got to start somewhere. And the address for my Facebook page is Kate Bush Podcast. So it's facebook.com slash Kate Bush Podcast. Feel free to write on the wall. Feel free to message me there. You can find me in multiple ways. We can connect because I want to hear from you. The part of why I want to do this podcast is not just to have an excuse to just talk about Kate Bush, <laughs> but also because I want to meet other Kate fans. We're all, we're all scattered around the world. Um, over the course of just this season, I'm, I've talked with somebody in Washington. I'm going to be talking with Graham Thompson, who's in Scotland. And I got to talk with 
Um, on the previous episode, I got to talk with somebody from Chicago. So we're all kind of scattered around the world. And also, I want to make a documentary, basically, of each song of hers so that like interesting facts and information don't get lost to time. And she's got such a rich body of work that, you know, we got lots to talk about. So please, hit me up on Twitter. Hit me up on Facebook. You can email me. I don't bite. I'm very friendly. And I want to hear from you. Yay! Thank you so much for coming up here to talk about Kate Bush with me. So I'm not up here by myself. I will gladly come up here and to record podcasts with you any day. Yay! And if your listeners enjoy hearing me uh, ramble on, they're welcome to check out my podcast where I record my audiobooks. Yeah, what is your what is your podcast, honey? Oh, it's called uh, Andrew Link's Audiobooks. Uh, I know it's a thrilling title. <laughs> Uh, I also no, do... but it's to the point. Yes. Uh, I also do have in, uh, individual feeds for each book as I release them. But you can find those all at andrewlink.com or andrew.linkmedia.com. So, thank you for having me on. It's uh, always fun to talk about music with you. Indeed. Thank you so much. <laughs> And here with me today to talk about the song are two very feisty cats and her husband, <laughs> Andrew Link, who's yes. going to step away from the microphone for a moment to kick the cats out while you do the rest of the introduction. Okay, very good. So I have my wonderful husband here to talk with me about this song, my husband, Andrew Link. And we're going to be talking about the seventh track on Kate's debut album. I want to recut that. this so you're yes. not saying that over and over again. <laughs> yes. The cats have now the cats have now been removed from the room. Yes. <laughs> oh wait, one of the cats. Has oh been wait, yeah. <laughs> well, I might cut this part out. Well, I might not. I think you should leave. I think I should leave this part. Leave in some of the cat talk. Yes, we'll talk the cat talk. Okay, so now that the cats have been evicted, because <laughs> they've decided that oh, we've got the humans up here. It's playtime. And we go, no, we're recording a podcast, Cat Children, kicking you out right now. Go watch cartoons. Yeah, go watch cartoons. Go watch cat cartoons or something. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. Fantasy Points.